Welcome to the sermon podcast of Old Bridge Baptist Church. Our mission at OBBC is to make disciples of Christ who connect with God, others, ministry, and the lost. We pray that the following sermon will encourage you in your walk with Christ today. Visit us on the web anytime at obb.church. The last time we studied Genesis together, about three weeks ago now, we saw Noah and his family emerging from the ark at God's command. And they emerged into what must have seemed like a, a new world. So drastic were the changes that had been wrought as an effect of the flood on the earth. And the only living creatures who were still uh, who were there were, were those creatures maybe that were in the sea or uh, Noah and his family who came off the ark and the other creatures that came off of the ark. We saw how as Noah came out of the ark, his first impulse wasn't to fall down on the ground and kiss the earth like I probably would have done. Right? But he came out of the ark and his first impulse was to fall on his knees and worship the Lord who had delivered him. I think as Noah worshipped, he was certainly thanking God for, for bringing him through the floodwaters. He was saying, God, thank you for this deliverance. But I think also as he worshipped the Lord, he was certainly also interceding. Right? He, was, he was making an offering, a sin offering. And so I think Noah's worship was at, at one time both God thank you and oh Lord in view of your power and your might Lord have mercy on us who remain it was both of those things thanksgiving and a cry for mercy intercession and we we saw that in response to the intercessory worship of Noah God established a covenant with him but not only just with Noah but he established this covenant with every living creature that was then alive. And not only with every living creature that was then alive, but every living creature that would ever exist down to our very uh, own lives today. He made this covenant with Noah and he promised in this covenant that he would never again destroy every living creature like he had just done with the flood. As long as the earth shall last... And it is this promise of God's future patience with us that will allow the rest of the drama of redemption to unfold. Because without this promise, I think we would have been forever stuck in this cycle of of utter depravity leading to utter destruction. But because of God's own mercy and by his own sovereign plan, he entered into a covenant with us And he promised to have future patience on us that he might work in this world in such a way that he might send his own son to redeem us from the problem of sin. It's all part of God's wonderful plan. Now, we saw last week that along with this covenant, God reaffirmed, actually three weeks ago, (laughs) God reaffirmed many of the blessings and commands that he had originally given to Adam and Eve at creation before the fall. 
And one of the most significant commands that God repeated to Noah was the command to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth. Well, guess what? God still wanted mankind to do that, and so he reestablishes that command with Noah in in Genesis chapter 9. He says in verse 1 of that chapter, he says, And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. And then again in in verse 7, he states it again. He says, And you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. God really wanted them to do that. And and so what we're going to see here, the rest of our study, you know, we're not studying the entire book of Genesis. We're only going to study the first 11 chapters, which sort of, the first 11 chapters is sort of ancient history. And then Genesis chapter 12 and forward marks uh, the the birth and the the life of of Abraham, birth of the, the Israelite nation. And that's kind of more near history. So we're only going to be studying up through chapter 11. And and really the rest of our time here in Genesis in this study is going to tell the story of how we went from three guys uh, descended from Noah who got off the ark and how they spread out over the face of the earth and, and gave us the diverse world that we now know full of different nations and races and cultures and languages. I mean, look look at the first two verses here of our passage this morning in verses 18 and 19. It says, The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. Every time in this passage that we hear about Ham, he's connected with Canaan. You know why that is? Because Genesis was originally written down by Moses who was leading a people through the wilderness to where? The land of Canaan. And they were getting ready to displace the Canaanites out of the land. And and so that becomes very important for the rest of our, our study here together. Verse 19, it says, These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. So it's the story of the dispersion from Noah's three sons across the the entire globe. And I I don't think I'm giving away too much here when I say uh, ahead of time here that we as a human race did not obey this command to fill the earth. We didn't didn't obey that command willingly. (laughs) This command, you can chalk it up there with all the other of God's commands, that we resisted and rebelled against. And that's what this, the next three chapters or so are going to tell that story of how we resisted even this. However, before we sort of dive headlong into this broader story of the dispersion of of the peoples across the earth, I really just want to zero in on the next two verses of our passage here this morning. We're not going to get all the way through this. Okay? I couldn't get past verses... 20 and 21 that tell us about the fall of Noah here. In fact, let's just reread those verses here. Verse 20, Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. I want to talk about this this morning. 
okay? Um, Noah, we see here, retires from ark making. Right? That, that job has done, that ship has sailed, so to speak. And he becomes a man of the soil. It's kind of romantic. He becomes a farmer. He could pick any farm he wanted. He had a choice of the land. And I'm sure out of necessity, he and his sons grew many different kinds of crops for food, but specifically the Bible zeroes in here on the fact that he grew a vineyard. And from the vineyard, we're, we are told that he makes wine. And, you know, obviously all this takes time, right? To grow a vineyard, you don't have a vineyard overnight. And even once you have the vineyard, I, I believe it takes time for that vineyard to sort of mature to the place where you're, you're able to do this. And uh, not only that, but then making wine takes some time, right? So we're, we're now a, a good bit away from the flood itself. Time, some time has passed. I think Noah's had some time to decompress from the stress of the flood. We notice here in, in verse 28 that Noah lived for another 350 years after the flood for a grand total of, of 950 years. And so I think we can say here that th- these are the twilight years of Noah's life. Right? It's the last third of his life. And uh, Noah here, he, he takes some of the wine that he has made and he gets drunk with it. And even though it doesn't say this, I, I suspect it was just him alone in his tent drinking away, right? And in his drunken stupor, it, it says that he uncovers himself. The Hebrew word is, is reflexive. No one uncovered him. In his drunkenness, he uncovered himself. And he passes out naked in his tent. Behold, Noah who has been earlier called righteous and blameless in his generation. Back in chapter 6, verse 9. Behold the prophet who in his generation alone was said to have walked with God. He's described in scripture as a herald of righteousness to others, yet here he becomes a victim of his own dissipation. So I think we need to slow down and, and carefully consider this this morning. Where exactly did Noah go wrong, go wrong here? And, and what happened, right? I mean, you're sort of like, Noah, you know, you were doing so good for 600 years. What, what happened, buddy? Right? You kind of want to have that talk with them. And, and how can we avoid a, a similar mistake in our lives? You know, there's a, a ministry website that I, I wouldn't say a frequent, but I, I will... That, that I like. Um, and it, it focuses on answering difficult questions. Not even difficult questions, just in, answering questions that you might have about the Bible. It's called, um, it's called gotquestions.org. I don't know if you've maybe been there before. If you ever just Google a, a question about the Bible, a lot of times the articles from this website will come up. And I, I was looking on there this week, and I was looking at their, their top 20 questions that people ask. You know, people search in the, in the search bar asking questions, and I think they keep track of what people are searching for. Top 20 questions that people ask. 
And guess what number 15 was on the list? What does the Bible say about alcohol, drinking alcohol? Is it a sin for a Christian to drink alcohol? And since, you know, so many people out there in, in internet land, right, are asking this question, nameless people, I can't help but, but wonder if there are people here even sitting in our own pews that, that wonder the answer to this very question. And so I, let's talk about it. I've never taken some time to actually talk about this together as a church family. So I, I think uh, as we witness Noah struggling with this drunken incident, let's talk about it. Let's see what the Bible has to say. You know, if you read the Bible from cover to cover, which I highly recommend, you're going to notice that there are passages in the Bible that describe alcohol in a positive way, as a good gift from God. Let me give you an example of this. Psalm 104, verses 14 and 15. It says, you cause the grass to grow, speaking of the Lord, of course. You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine and bread to strengthen man's heart. Right? It's, the, it's the Lord that causes these things to come and it, it's described here as something that gladdens the heart of man and that the Lord it to grow. Another example here is Isaiah 55.1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come buy and eat. Come buy wine and milk without money and without price. Wine is listed here almost as a staple, right up there with water, bread, and milk. Uh, paints it certainly in... in at least a, a neutral light, if not a positive light there. And I could list, list other passages like this, uh, but another couple, I think, pertinent passages here would be 1 Timothy 5.23, where the Apostle Paul prescribes sort of a medicinal use of, of some wine to Timothy because uh, he says, for the sake of your stomach, no longer drink just wine, but take a little... No longer drink just water, but take a little wine, you know, for the sake of your stomach and for frequent ailments. And of course, perhaps most significantly, everybody's always quick to point out that Jesus, at a wedding feast, turned the water not into grape juice, right? But into wine. And not just any wine, but really good wine, right? They noticed the quality of it. And he did this at the prodding of his mother, Mary. John chapter 2. So, you know, I conclude from passages of Scripture like these that alcohol itself is not inherently sinful. In fact, it appears to have been intended to be one of God's good gifts to mankind. Therefore, it was not a sin, I don't think, for Noah to grow a vineyard. It wasn't a, a sin for him to make wine wasn't a sin for him even to drink some of that wine. However, like so many of God's good gifts, our sinful hearts take what was intended by God to be a good gift and we abuse it. 
take it and we misuse it, we abuse it. And so I would add to, to this that even though alcohol is in no way prohibited in Scripture, even though it, it, it's in no way prohibited in Scripture, lost my place here, um, we must acknowledge that our sinful hearts are particularly susceptible to the dangers of alcohol abuse and addiction. Right? Alcohol is, is a powerful thing. And our sinful hearts are quick to take it and to become addicted to it and to abuse it. The Proverbs instruct us to be wise about these dangers. Proverbs chapter 23 29 through 35 here says, Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaining? Who has wounds without cause? Who has redness of eyes? Those who tarry long over drink. Those who go to try mixed wine. Do not look at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup and goes down smoothly. In the end, it bites like a serpent and stings like an adder. Your eyes will see strange things and your heart utter perverse things. You will be like one who lies down in the midst of the sea, like one who lies on the top of a mast. They struck me, you will say, but, but I was not hurt. They beat me, but I did not feel it. When shall I awake? I must have another drink. Describes the, the struggle with someone who lingers long over wine and shows the folly of that. Right, so the scriptures encourage us to be wise when it comes to the use of alcohol. But more than this, the scriptures don't not only encourage us to be wise, but specifically, the scriptures tell us that drunkenness itself is a sin. Ephesians chapter 5 is our New Testament reading this morning. In verse 18, Paul says that Drunkenness is sin. He says here, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, or some translations say dissipation. But be filled with the Spirit. Paul says that drunkenness is debauchery or dissipation. It's the opposite of the Spirit-filled life. He's contrasting two ways of life here. He's saying, don't be drunk, right? But be filled with the Spirit. Don't be filled with alcoholic spirits. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. He's drawing a contrast here. Peter tells us in 1 Peter 1 and 13, Therefore, preparing your minds for action. It's literally, actually like the more literal translation of that, that you know, back in the day they, they used to wear you know, more of like a, a garment. That would, if you were running in it, you might trip. So literally, it's here, gird up the loins of your mind, like as if you were preparing to go running. And being sober-minded, we are called to a sober-mindedness. Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I think the result of abusing alcohol is a loss of self-control which is opposed to the fruit of the Spirit-filled life. So on a very basic level, we can say, is drinking itself a sin in and of itself? And we would answer that, no. But on the other hand, we would ask, is drunkenness a sin? And we would say, yes. It seems a little black and white. 
but I, I think it's not just black and white. I think, I think there's some gray area here, okay? Let's, let's dive into this a little bit. I think as a Christian, you should also be asking yourself, is drinking wise for me? Or perhaps, is drinking what's best for me? We must recognize that the, the answers to, to those kinds of questions, is it wise for me, is it what's best for me, is, is probably going to vary from person to person and from context to context. Some people who maybe have struggled with alcohol addiction, the answer is going to be no. It's not wise for me to even get anywhere near it. For, for someone who maybe is able to control themselves in that way, maybe the answer might be yes. So we see that there, there is a certain liberty for a Christian to drink without getting drunk. But we must also ask, is it wise for you to do so? Um, and I think that each one of us should search this out for ourselves before the Lord and be fully convinced in our own hearts. We can't even stop there. I think we need to take this even further. After we've asked, is it wise, I think there's another even more important question that we need to ask ourselves, and that is this. Is it loving for me to drink in this situation? Is it loving? See, the New Testament teaches us that we have an incredible freedom in Christ. We have an incredible liberty in Christ. And even if I am convinced in my own heart that I am free to enjoy God's good gift, there is a greater principle than even liberty. We are, are to be guided by the principle of Christ-like love for one another. And so we need to ask ourselves, will exercising my liberty in this situation cause another brother or sister to stumble? Will it cause another brother or sister to stumble if I take this drink? And I think alcohol is one of those areas where you ought to be extremely careful in this regard because it is just so addictive and so destructive to so many people and you may not even be aware of how you're influencing those around you. So be wise to the dangers and the propensity of your own flesh to potentially abuse it. Understand that you have a testimony to maintain. And be at liberty, if you may. But even more so, let me encourage you to be loving to those around you. And lastly, let me just admonish you to eagerly seek the filling of the Holy Spirit. Along the, the, the spirit of, the, of these sorts of passages, 1 Peter 1.13, that the goal of our lives as Christians is to be filled and controlled by the Holy Spirit. Seek the filling of the Holy Spirit above and beyond anything else. I, I kid you not that the filling of the Holy Spirit is everything. It is everything. And, and, and so I think when, when we're having discussions about things like, uh, about things like alcohol, and it's sort of one of the stereotypical things we point to to say, you know, Christians don't do this, they don't do that, they don't do this, that, and the other thing. And we don't want to put the emphasis just on not doing something. We want to put our emphasis upon what we get to do. We get to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. And Ephesians chapter 5 here describes for us 
such something that is far above and beyond anything that alcohol could ever offer you. Right, let me just read this again for you here. Ephesians 5, 18 through 20 says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery or dissipation, but be filled with the Holy Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. <laughs> I mean, this is the tiny taste of what it means to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And what is being described there is better. It is better. Paul is not taking away something uh, from us, you know, sort of this dissipated life where we drink away our sorrows and, and forget everything. He's describing for us being filled with the Holy Spirit and, and, and being, having a heart full of psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. To have a heart full of melody to the Lord is better. To be filled with the fruits of the Spirit, including self-control, is better. To be filled with thanksgiving in every situation and for all things is better. The Holy Spirit truly is the Spirit of thanksgiving. Right, as we're heading, heading into the, our, our week of thanksgiving in particular, I love how this passage talks about how when we're filled with Him, we can give thanks always and for everything. In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So let me just ask you, does your drinking lead you to stumble and lose self-control? Let me encourage you to examine that habit in light of the Word of God. And hear the call to rather be filled with the Holy Spirit. If you struggle with drinking, especially to excess or even uh, to alcohol addiction, I want you to know that, that we're here for you. Right? For some reason, drinking is one of those sins that if you're a professed Christian and you struggle with that sin, there's, there's shame attached with that to where people are sometimes afraid to get help. And I want you to know that even in me preaching this, this message we're here to help, right? And we want to encourage you that if this is a struggle that you yourself have, that it doesn't get better by hiding it in your tent, right? You end up like Noah passed out naked and alone in your tent, right? That doesn't, you don't, you don't find help in that way. The way that you find help with a, a, any kind of addiction is to expose light to it and to get some help from your brothers and sisters in Christ. We're here for you and we love you. Um, I know in a group this size, surely there's someone who, who potentially needs help in that area. So I just want, want you to understand and know that clearly. No one needed help. And I think we've established here that uh, even if drinking is not a sin, that drunkenness is. And, and, and Noah sinned here in a way that wasn't pretty. If there was tabloids in that day, this would have maybe made the tabloids, right? Noah found, the prophet Noah found, passed out naked, alone in his tent, discovered by his son, right? Um, this wasn't pretty. And, and we don't like to see our spiritual heroes fall into sin. And yet, Noah's fall into sin here is, I think, all too familiar to all of us. Because we too are sinners 
struggling with indwelling sin. There's no doubt that Noah stumbled here, but Noah did not lose his salvation. There are some people who would, who would say that, you know, uh, for a professed Christian to, to sin and to stumble means that they lose their salvation. And, and we want to be perfectly clear here that Noah's acceptance before God was based upon his faith, not upon his imperfect record of personal righteousness. Not by works, but by faith. The way of salvation has been and always will be either by works or by God's grace and faith. It's a choice that you have. You can try to earn your own righteousness. You can try to earn your own way to heaven through your record. If you, wanna, if you think you can do better than Noah <laughs> and earn a perfect record, then that certainly is a, a, a valid way to pursue righteousness. But guess what? The Bible tells us that we all fall short of that. And so the alternative to that is the way of faith. Right? The Bible tells us that Noah, by faith, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. And by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. How did, how was, how did Noah become an heir of the righteousness that condemns the world? He became an heir of that by faith. Right? So this stumble late in his life doesn't jeopardize that. It was not characteristic of who Noah was. In fact, we see even in this story that Noah gets up and he continues to walk with the Lord. So we're, we're confronted here with the reality for those of us who have been saved by faith, not by works, that even though we are alive spiritually within, that we still live with a sinful, fallen human flesh that wants to give in to temptation. There is a spiritual battle that we are engaged in. And our call is to stand firm in our faith for the glory of God. And in this regard, I would say Noah is just like us. Brian Chappell says that the, the Bible is careful to soil all our heroes, save one, Jesus Christ. So I actually, when I read st- stories like this, and I'm always like, you know, you kind of groan inwardly. You're like, no, not Noah. I love Noah, right? You know, don't... I don't want to hear about Noah stumbling in this way, but, and yet hearing this reminds me that, hey, the floodwaters did not bring about the cleansing that we needed. It cleansed the earth in a way, but it didn't cleanse Noah's heart. Only the blood of Jesus can cleanse someone's heart. Noah was not the promised snakehead bruiser of Genesis 3.15. The deliverance that Noah experienced via the ark did not deliver us from sin or the curse. We must await a greater deliverance. We must await Jesus Christ. And so it, it strikes me here as I ponder this situation with Noah that Noah did better. Noah did better with adversity than with blessing. He did better 
when he was immersed in a sinful world headed to destruction and he had an ark to build for the salvation of his family. He had a message to preach of, of righteousness and he had a testimony ma- to maintain and he thrived. But here in the, in the twilight years of his life when the deliverance had been wrought, when the kids had grown up and were having kids of their own and his career of ark buildings behind him and the great trial of the flood is come and gone. It was in, in these moments, in the twilight years of Noah's life, that he let his guard down and he fell into personal sin. And just imagine him thinking, what's the harm here in my own tent? I'm not harming anyone. But his private sin in his own tent then spilled out of his tent and led to further sin in the life of one of his sons. Sin is never private. I think that we can identify with Noah in this way. We often do better with adversity than with blessing. God's people often have a better record when they're they're facing persecution, when they're facing hardship. We hit our knees and we're praying to God and calling out to God and we're on guard spiritually. But then when the blessings come, we relax. You think, ah, time for a little of the good life now, right? I've earned this. Don't be disarmed. Blessing, our blessings tend to disarm us. Don't be disarmed by your blessings. Rather, be filled with the spirit of thanksgiving, right? Don't respond to your blessings with a, with a sense of indulgence and gluttony and lust and dissipation, rather receive the blessings of God with thanksgiving and with a spirit-filled walk. I think Noah's late in life stumble is a reminder to all of us that no matter how old we are, we are called to run our race with endurance all the way to the finish line. You haven't arrived. You, you don't arrive when you, when you pray a prayer and you you've um, received the Lord Jesus as your Savior. You haven't arrived even when you've been baptized, right? You haven't arrived even at any point along the journey. We, we arrive when we take our last breath of this earth and we breathe our first breath in heaven. So I, I want to say specifically, and I'm going to close with this, that if you are like, like Noah or in your twilight years, I want to specifically to you because I think this has direct application to you you need to know that your testimony still matters matters to the Lord matters to those of us who are running behind you you are not home yet the spiritual battle is still on don't let up don't give up don't lessen your your Pursuit your zeal in pursuing the Lord. Don't slacken your pace. Don't let your heart grow dissipated and cold and hard. If anything, as you draw closer to the finish line, may you strain all the more to reach out and lay hold of the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that that's, expresses the desire of all of our hearts. And if and when you stumble and sin because you are a sinner... Show us how to get back up in the strength and promise of the gospel, trumpeting the praises of his grace and mercy and love.
Listen to the confession of Kent Hughes. I'll close with this. He said, Noah's folly is recorded to make us wise. His pathetic example demonstrates that people in their prime and even in their old age are sometimes overtaken by sensualities that they before had avoided. He says, I've known this because it has been told to me for years, but now I can feel it. The tendency to allow myself indulgences that I had avoided when younger, or be they visual or mental or physical, with the dismissive line that I'm too old for these things to harm me. The tendency is to ease up when the conflicts lessen. Remember Robert McQuilkin's words in his poem, Let Me Get Home Before Dark. The darkness of a spirit grown mean and small. Fruit shriveled on the vine, bitter to the taste of my companions, burdened to be borne by those brave few who still love me. No, Lord, let the fruit grow lush and sweet, a joy to all who taste, spirit sign of God at work, stronger, fuller, brighter at the end. Lord, let me get home before.